Let's turn our attention to Galatians. The book of Galatians, we've been working through Galatians for a good little while now. And uh, we've come to a text that uh, is a, a pretty good text. I mean, well, all of it's good. But it's, it's, it's pretty, um, it was one of those places where, uh, as I began to study this week, uh, the words of uh, Peter, as Peter is writing in Second uh, Peter uh, chapter uh, 3, verse uh, 16, I think it is, uh, Peter says there, that when he, uh, when when people heard Paul preach and teach, and and when he read Paul, uh, he said there were some things in the writings and in the letters that Paul spoke of that are hard to understand, which the ignorant and unstable twist to their own destruction as they do the other scriptures. And I kind of felt like that. I was kind of I was kind of identifying with Peter a little bit as I was working on this text because. Uh, just the way Paul presents his argument. And so uh, I come to the text this week and, and uh, I have uh, studied and prayed and prepared and, and thought and scratched my head and, and wondered. And uh, Paul uses an allegory here to make his point. Um, I think in a very real way, Paul is doing exactly uh, what Jesus, he's echoing what Jesus taught when Jesus said, that which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. I think Paul's allegory here uh, is a word picture for us, and it's contrasting two irreconcilable differences. Um, he, he's, he's talking about the difference between a mere legal religion and true spiritual faith. But he's using an Old Testament argument that I think is very, very enlightening. He uses an allegory here. Um, and, and really what Paul's after as he writes to the Galatian church, to the saints who have come to trust and love Jesus, but who have been tempted to fall back into the old ways, he uses an allegory here. And, and, and that he... he well, that he basically takes the argument that the Judaizers had come in and had begun to, to disperse among God's people, uh, he takes their argument and he turns it on its head. And he uses two sons, two mothers, and two covenants to do it. Okay? And so that's what we're after this morning. In fact, here's the argument that, that was going on. The interpretation of the Judaizers, of these legalists who had come in to take the joy away from the believing Christians there in Galatia, in the region of Galatia. Paul says the argument could have gone like this. Or I'm going to summarize what, the way Paul's saying this argument. He says the Jews derived their ancestry from Isaac, right? Isaac is in the lineage Isaac is, is the forebearer. Isaac is the son of the free woman, Sarah. Sarah, Isaac, and those who are their descendants own the inheritance. They've been granted the inheritance. On the other hand, Ishmael is a descendant from Hagar. Ishmael is a son of a slave woman. Ishmael has no inheritance. Just a brief inheritance was promised Ishmael. He was essentially a Gentile. 
And the Jews receiving the liberating knowledge of the, of, of the law, uh, the Gentiles were, were in bondage to slavery. They were in bondage to ignorance. They, they, the Jews were children of the covenant by birth. The Gentiles can enjoy the blessings of the covenant. And so Paul is setting up this irreconcilable, he's taking the argument of the Judaizers, this irreconcilable difference, and he's turning their argument upside down, Okay. That's what we're after. So basically he's saying by embracing the Mosaic law, you can align yourself with the Judaizers. Or by embracing the son of the covenant, you can become free in Jesus. So we need to work through that this morning. And I'm going to just ask you to be patient, to sit back and to get comfortable, take a few moments. And let's work through this text carefully and, and uh, think through what uh, God has to teach us this morning. Let's read the uh, scriptures before us, Galatians chapter 4, verse 21 and following. Tell me, you who desire to be under the law, do you not listen to the law? For it is written that Abraham had two sons, one by a slave woman and one by a free woman. But the son of the slave was born according to the flesh, while the son of the free woman was born through promise. Now this may be interpreted allegorically. These women are two covenants. One is from Mount Sinai, bearing children for slavery. She is Hagar. Now Hagar is Mount Sinai in Arabia. She corresponds to the present Jerusalem, for she is in slavery with her children. But the Jerusalem above is free. She is our mother, for it is written, Rejoice, O barren one who does not bear. Break forth and cry aloud, you who are not in labor. For the Lord of the desolate one will be more than those who, of, of the one who has a husband. Now you brothers like Isaac are children of promise. But just as at that time, he who was born according to the flesh persecuted him who was a born according to the Spirit, so also it is now. But what does the Scripture say? Cast out the slave woman and her son, for the son of the slave woman shall not inherit with the son of the free woman. So, brothers, we are not children of the slave, but of the free woman. Let's pray. O Holy Spirit, we ask you this morning to breathe life into our souls, to make our hearts hearts of flesh that can receive the word. Father, that you would indeed speak to us, and that we might see our Lord Jesus Christ as the one who has purchased our inheritance, as the one who has adopted us into your beloved family. Father, help us to untangle uh, thoughts that are distant and that are far for us, foreign in so many ways. Grant to us that we would leave this place today understanding better who we are in Jesus Christ and knowing how much we need the gospel 
day after day after day in our living and in our walking and in our working and in our loving and in our relationships in every facet of who we are. I ask in Jesus' name, amen. So this morning, the first thing I want to do, if I can, is I want to create a historical canvas for us. I want, I want to stretch the canvas over the frame, uh, if you will. And so I'm going to ask you to do something uh, this morning that uh, uh, we're just going to do in kind of a survey fashion. I want you to take your Bible, and, and everybody needs to grab a Bible, and uh, I'm going to send you to an easy place to find. Uh, I, want, I want you to turn to Genesis chapter 12. Okay, I was going to say turn to Deuterinthians 15, but I figured that would be mean. Um, <clears throat> so go to, first, go to uh, Genesis chapter 12, and we're going to trace kind of the life of Abraham, and Lord willing, I'm going to do that in about two and a half minutes, okay? So keep your fingers uh, nimble here as we flip through the life of Abraham. In Genesis chapter 12, in the first couple of verses, God starts something with Abram. You know, you remember Abram was his name before God changed his name. God starts something in Genesis chapter 12. Verse 2, God tells Abram that God is going to make him into a great nation and that all the families of the earth will be blessed through him, that he has set Abram aside for his sovereign, gracious purposes, that all the earth is going to be pretty cool, really. Pretty amazing promise to Abram when you realize who Abram, the son of Terah, really is, when you do the background work on who he was. So Abram, takes God's promise, and it's reckoned to him as righteousness. In other words, Abram believes God. He puts his faith in God's promises, and what does he do? Abram sets out. He trusts God. He says, okay, Lord, I trust you, and he moves from city to city, from territory to territory, and, and he and his wife Sarai are married, and, and uh, they live together and as husband and wife, and as they are journeying, they come to Egypt, you know the story? Pharaoh sees Sarah, that she is a beautiful woman, and uh, Pharaoh um, pays Abram a pretty sum as a dowry. Abram basically throws Sarah under the bus. Uh, I want to say Abram pimped Sarah out. It's not exactly what he did, but it's pretty close. Sarah goes into Pharaoh's household as one of Pharaoh's wives. Pharaoh endures the curse of God. Pharaoh recognizes that Sarah is actually Abram's wife and uh, that the Lord had sent plagues on his house because he was sleeping with Abram's wife, with, with uh, the, the woman, the, 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 the wife of the man to whom God had made these huge promises. And Pharaoh sends Abram away with all the dowry, with gold and cattle and flocks and everything else. And Abram is a rich man. God uses a crooked stick to strike straight blows. And you need to realize that. 
That's part of what God is doing in that text. He's showing us those kinds of things. Abram's very rich. Abram and Lot meet up. Abram and Lot separate. If you keep flipping Genesis 13, 14, um, we're in Genesis 14 about now, I guess. Um, the years are ticking off. Um, uh, Lot and Abram part ways. Um, that you remember Abram had to rescue Lot uh, from uh, the uh, 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 Sodom and Gomorrah, uh, Genesis uh, 14. Genesis 15, God renews and he clarifies and he expands the covenant with Abram. Uh, and, and the time is ticking and ticking and ticking and the years are passing by. And still after all these years, the promise that God had made to Abram in Genesis 12 hasn't taken place. Abram and Sarah are barren. No kiddos. But God had promised to make him a great nation, but no kiddos. And the clock is ticking, and they are getting older. And they, are, and they weren't spring chickens when this began, okay? They were, not, they were not in their late 20s, okay? They were not in their early 30s. They were not, they, you know, they were, they were old. No kiddos. Sarah devises a plan. She knows that she's growing old. And so Sarah decides that she's going to help God keep his promise. They've been living in the land of Canaan. They've been, they've been living in the land that God had promised them for 10 years. And Sarah sends her handmaiden, her, her slave, her, her number one slave, in to be to sleep with Abram. Lo and behold, Hagar conceives a child. Conflict arises between Sarah and Hagar, and as you can only imagine, and, and, and by the way, I think that it's interesting, in Genesis 16, Genesis 16 records uh, the birth of Ishmael very, in very similar words to the words that are recorded about the birth of Jesus. Listen to verse 16, um, verse 11. The angel of the Lord comes and he says, Behold, you are pregnant, you shall bear a son, and you shall call his name Ishmael. Sound kind of vaguely familiar? There's an echoing theme here. Because the Lord has listened to your affliction, he shall be a wild donkey of a man, his hand against everyone, and everyone's hand against him. And he shall dwell over against all his kinsmen. So often is the case, man's plans are not God's means. God helps those who help themselves, right? Uh-uh. That is never right. That is in Deuterinthians, okay? It ain't in the Bible is what I'm telling you, okay? So Abraham's 86. Kind of a young fella for 86, I guess. God lets Abram wait another 13 years. Abram's 99 years old. God changes his name to Abraham. God renews the covenant with Abraham in Genesis chapter 17, and it's beautiful. And God tells Abraham that in another year, he will have a son, and that son's name will be Isaac. That's 14 years after Ishmael is born. Ishmael. He's got a 14 year, he's 14 years old and he's got a brand new baby brother named Isaac. Think about the family dynamic that that creates 
Think about all of it that, that involves. Isaac means laughter, understandable. I mean, you can understand that. Abram, or Abraham and Sarah are so old that they are nearly fossils in a mixture of joyous faith and bewilderment and in, in, in just you know, incredulity. Abraham and Sarah split their sides laughing at what God has said. Sarah's womb that has long given up the ghost. And you can imagine Abraham looking at himself and, and, and seeing his own body and thinking he is as good as dead. This is going to be really interesting, Abraham had to think. Isaac's born, not, uh, not of her or Abram's will or logic, but simply in fulfillment of God's promise. God is the one who promises and who is ever faithful to his promises. And time doesn't mean diddly squat to our Heavenly Father in the same way it does to us by any means, okay? God brings forth a child born of faith. The child of promise. They call Every time they call Isaac's name, surely they were reminded of how utterly ridiculous the whole thing was. And simultaneously, they would have been reminded, I think, to marvel at God. I just have this mental picture of Isaac as a, as a two-year-old and Abraham as 102 years old and disciplining his two-year-old son. I mean, I just, I, the picture of that brings laughter to my heart when I think about it. <clears throat> I'm, this is just a total aside. This is what, not in my notes, so don't worry about it, guys, in the sound booth. So <clears throat> Palmer Robertson was one of my uh, professors uh, when I was at Reform Seminary, and uh, he was an older man when he uh, was teaching at Reform Seminary. Years later, I mean, I've been in the ministry for 25 years, maybe longer than that, and uh, I moved to Baltimore, Maryland, to Chesapeake Presbytery, and Palmer Robertson was a member of Presbytery, and uh, he was serving as a missionary. And uh, Palmer's first wife had died many years ago, and she, he remarried. And his new wife became pregnant. And so at Presbytery, we started calling Palmer Robertson Father Abraham. <laughs> he was a father in the faith. He would just, he, and Palmer was an Old Testament professor too, by the way, which makes it even better. But, you know, we got a kick out of Palmer. But think about Abram, 100 years old. And he got a five-year-old running around the house doing what five-year-olds do. And they do it all the time. And think about how tired you feel right now. Think about it if you were 100. We don't have anybody here that old yet. And I hope some of you make that mark, okay? But think about having a child at that age. Oh, indeed, Isaac. You think about the other events in Isaac's life, too, if you remember the story. I think Hebrews 11 puts it this way. I think they, that Hebrews 11 sums it up well. By faith, Sarah herself received power to conceive, even when she was past the age, since she considered him faithful who had promised Therefore, from one man, and him as good as dead, were, both, were born descendants as many as the stars of heaven and as many as the innumerable grains of sand by the seashore. Genesis 12 through the end 
of Isaac's story, actually through the end of the Scripture, is a promise of faith. The story of Abraham and Sarah, the story of Isaac and Ishmael, is a story of promise, of faith, not biology. Oh, we marvel at God's power to overcome human biology. But it's a story of faith. So Paul's not just reviewing ancient history for the Galatian church here in Galatians chapter 4. Paul, Paul, the story is our story. Everyone is a slave by nature. Every one of us are Hagar's children by our human nature until the faithfulness of God's promise sets us free. Everyone is either an Ishmael or an Isaac is the way you could draw the line if you want to. Either still what we are by nature or by the grace of God set free. That's Paul's argument here, and that's what John Stott basically, that's a quote from John Stott. That's basically what happens in our text here. So the allegory. If you think of it like a canvas, what Paul does next is he paints that canvas with the colors that we need to see to see the beauty of what God has done using human events to talk about spiritual realities. We're to see how God inverts the way we think using the story of Isaac and Ishmael to prove the gospel of grace and to reject legalism. So here's what Paul says, Galatians uh, 4.24. These women, Hagar and, and Sarah, are two covenants. One is from Mount Sinai, where the Ten Commandments came bearing children for slavery. She is Hagar. Now Hagar is Mount Sinai in Arabia. She corresponds to the present Jerusalem, for she is in slavery with her children. But the Jerusalem above, the heavenly Jerusalem, is free, and she is our mother. Mount Sinai was where covenant law gave, was given to us. Covenant law was given to us to show us, number one, that we cannot be faithful enough to save ourselves. You can't keep the law. That's why Jesus had to come in with the Sermon on the Mount and, 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 and blow the law up so that we could understand how much we needed a Savior, how poorly we keep the law, how, how narrow our focus is when we say, thou shalt not commit adultery, we think we don't engage in the act of adultery. And Jesus says to look on a woman and even with lust in your eyes is to commit adultery in your heart. And you can take any of the other commands and do the same thing. Jesus just blows them up. We have such a narrow view. Mount Sinai was a covenant of law. Galatians 3.23 says this, Now before faith came, we were held captive under the law, imprisoned until the coming faith should be revealed. Hagar is another picture of life under the pedagogue, under the pedagogy of law. You understand that? Her, her heirs in, inhibit, in, inhabit the, the earthly Jerusalem. Um, and, and Paul talks about the earthly Jerusalem um, to, to talk about a realm. He's, he's using Jerusalem like we would use Washington to represent the entire United States. 
or like uh, uh, Melinda was in, in, in uh, uh, Ukraine, like we would speak of Kiev as representing all of the thinking of the, the nation of, of uh, Ukraine, or like we think of London as representing all of England. Okay, Paul's using that kind of terminology here in the text. Hagar stands for the religion of the natural person. She represents what we do in the flesh, in our self-trust, in our bondage to legalism and legislation. But Sarah, on the other hand, in contrast, stands for grace. She stands for what God has done, for God, for, for trusting God, for radical spiritual freedom, for unfettered sonship. Phil Riken, I got a great quote from Phil Riken this week. Let me read it for you. Did I get it in those PowerPoints this week? I don't remember. The new Jerusalem is not just for the future. God has already started to build his eternal city. The new Jerusalem has, re been, has replaced the now Jerusalem. The spiritual Jerusalem has superseded the earthly Jerusalem in the plan of God. The promises of the Old Testament were not for the Jews only, but they are fulfilled in the church of Jesus Christ. Anyone who receives Jesus as Savior and Lord is a son or daughter of Sarah, a true child of Abraham. If we belong to God's family in this way, we are free in Christ. We are citizens of the new Jerusalem and enjoy the freedom of that eternal city. You see what Paul is saying there? You understand what, what, what Paul means when he talks about the difference between Hagar and Sarah? When he talks about being citizens of the, of the new Jerusalem? I was thinking about the city of Jerusalem representing uh, the whole Jewish nation and everything else, and thinking about the coming of the kingdom of God. And maybe this is, uh, maybe, maybe this is uh, um, something that's outside of your categories to think about. But Israel was of the city of Jerusalem. That's where worship took place. That was the old way. Then the New Jerusalem is the picture of life under the covenant, the heavenly Jerusalem, the now and the not yet of the kingdom of God. Does that make sense? Think about that. Let that idea sift around in your thinking. Looking forward to the not yet Jerusalem is what we look forward to in heaven, to the one that's going to be perfect. It's going to be complete in every way. Anyway, I think the, the allegory emphasizes the difference between spiritual slavery and spiritual freedom. It's impossible to overstate how dramatic that would have been for the Judaizers and for Paul's audience. Paul was stepping on toes like a bulldozer. I mean, he was flattening their arguments, and he scared the bejeebers out of the Jews and out of the Judaizers in his day. To the Pharisee, a physical Jerusalem and the temple is sacrosanct. That's not something you mess with. The potential loss of those uh, were, were part of the motives that the Jews had in crucifying the Lord Jesus Christ. And here Paul goes and he's stirring the pot again. He's doing the same thing Jesus did. No wonder the Judaizers 
were upset with the Apostle Paul. His opponents saw him as a threat, and his preaching would lead to the same outcome that Jesus' preaching did, and Paul needed to be stopped. These Galatian Christians could not be taught and could not buy into what Paul is teaching about freedom and grace in Jesus. We need the law, the Judaizers would say, and they fought it with all their hearts. Here's a quote from Spurgeon describing what spiritual slavery is like. I, I thought this was so great. This is from a sermon that Spurgeon preached in 1856, but it's so true today. All those who trust in works never are free and never can be. If I could keep all God's law, I have no right to favor, for I should have done no more than was my duty and be a bond slave still. The law is the most rigorous master in the world. No wise man would love its service, for after all you have done, the law never gives you a thank you for it, but says, go on, sir, go on. The poor sinner trying to be saved by law is like a blind horse going round and round the mill and never stepping a, or never getting a step further, but only being whipped continually. Yea, the faster he goes, the more work he does, the more he is tired, so much the worse for him. That is the picture of keeping the law. You'll never keep it perfectly. You're like a blind horse grinding on a mill. You know, that doesn't mean that we'll ever be totally free from the struggle with sin this side of heaven either. Romans 7, you know, Paul's struggle with life. Paul's honesty here, the good he would do, he does not do. And he gets all of his, his you, you hear his struggle and his, his wrestling with uh, the pattern of life and everything else. Paul recognizes over the fact that the good he would do, he doesn't do, and the very thing he would do, he, he would not do, he does. Uh, but at the very same time, Romans 7 comes in a context. Romans 6, where we're told that we uh, have died and been raised with Christ, is the precursor to Romans 7. And, and Romans 8 follows Romans 7, where Romans 8 declares, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And so what the Apostle Paul has done is he said, I am set free from sin. I am no longer a, a slave of Hagar's. I am, I am a son of the promise. I have the inheritance that, that Sarah and Abram and all the saints in the covenant have brought for me. But I still wrestle with the realities of sin and my heart and my fallenness in this broken world. And I do it simultaneously. I am a sinner and I am a saint all at the same time. The Latin phrase for that is, pop it up, Eustus et peccador simul. Okay, the whole, I, I, I thought I would throw a little Latin in. It's good theology, good theological language, you know. You know what it really means? You know what it means in English? It means justified and sinner simultaneously. 
Okay, both at the same time. That's who we are. Sounds so theological, doesn't it? Isn't it great? <laughs> but that's who you are. You're a sinner. Even though you've been born again. I'm guessing I don't need to illustrate that for you. Don't, don't, don't share any personal illustrations of that here this morning. I won't share any from myself. Luther, when Luther wrote that word, those words, he didn't mean that we are like a split personality either. Okay, let me be clear here. Let me be sure you understand. Luther wasn't saying that we're partly sinner and partly saint. Okay? He, he, that's not what he means. He didn't mean that we're only sinners sometimes, and then sometimes we're, you know, when you do bad stuff, you're a sinner. And then sometimes we're saints and we do good stuff. And we have this kind of split personality. What Luther means by that statement is he means you're fully a sinner and you're fully justified saint at the same time. We talk about the hypostatic union of Jesus Christ. Another theological term, I didn't mean to do that. But we talk, about, we talk about the fact that Christ was fully God and fully man. Well, here we have the hypostatic union for one of Sarah's descendants for you and me. Fully sinner. Fully saint at the same time. That's what Luther meant by this fancy Latin phrase. It sounds so theological and so intelligent. We are fully saint and fully sinner. Denying that you're a sinner saint only puts you in the position of the Judaizers. If you merely tolerate it, by believing that you'll be able to overcome, overcome your sin, if you just muster enough commitment, if you, if you just are obedient enough, if you just discipline yourself enough, if you have enough spiritual fortitude, if you don't forget to read your devotional as a congregation devotional this week, then, then you'll be all right. That's not what we're talking about here. The, 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 simul, the, the, the simultaneous is not God's last word about your birthright either. We are sinner saints now. We are not yet what we shall be. We are not yet whole. We are not yet perfect. We have glory to look forward to when we are fully redeemed in Jesus. Y'all, that's what we celebrate here at the table in just a little while. That's part of why we celebrate the Lord's Supper. We're looking forward to the marriage supper of the Lamb. But we will be all that we've been created to be. We need to be fed by the gospel over and over and over again because without it, the truth is that, that we can't do as we desire. It's not feasible. It, it would drive us insane. The Holy Spirit is the pledge and the seal of all that is yet to come. It's little wonder that we ache and that we groan in our spirits. That we, like all of creation, wait eagerly for the redemption, for the full manifestation of the kingdom of God. Don't be surprised that, that you go through the shadows and, and sometimes you're filled with as much fear and as doubt as, as you have faith and love. Don't be surprised by that. This is not yet heaven. We're not there yet. Simultaneously, Sinner and saint, now and not yet. Because of the finished work of Jesus Christ, we're free. 
What a great and glorious promise the gospel brings. For the Lord is the Spirit, and wherever the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom, First Corinthians or 2 Corinthians 3.17 says. There's no need to pretend to yourself or to pretend to others or to pretend before God that you're not a sinner. <laughs> don't be so foolish. Don't, don't try to hide that. You're free to live without pretense, without navel-gazing and examining every minute thought and motive and action and intention that you have. We're free in Christ to do that. But we don't have the license to live as those who have no law. We're simultaneously sinner and saint. Our sanctification doesn't lie in escaping the world either. It's but in believing the gospel is where our, our transformation is, where our faith is, where our security lies. My dear brother Steve Brown has been preaching this kind of message for years and years and years. He's taught the truth about the freedom so boldly that sometimes he's drawn a little fire from other people about his preaching from today's Judaizers, I guess. I want to quote Steve here. I wish I could do it in his voice. <coughs> I can't get that low. Almost everything we've done, everything we've been taught to do and to think concerning the Christian life is not only wrong, it only makes things worse. Trying harder doesn't work. You should know that by now. Becoming more religious will only magnify the problem. Being disciplined and making a commitment will more often than not cause you to hit the rocks of reality. And your efforts in the end will turn to dust. Pretending is stupid. At some point, you will slip up and be shamed. And reading the latest book on making an impact, changing your world, or being driven by a purpose, as good as those things can be, will probably drive you nuts. You will feel guiltier. Motivational advice, biblical directives, challenges, and resolutions are dogs that simply won't hunt anymore. That is a direct quote from Steve Brown. He is right. We need to get that. In summary, Steve says this, and if you've not read his book, Three Free Sins, you need it. You need to read it. What if you had three free sins? Better, what if you had unlimited free sins? Even better yet, what if your sins weren't even the issue? What if the issue were living your life with someone who loved you without condition or condemnation? That's the way Jesus Christ loves you. Without condition or condemnation. You're his child. He loves you. You can't out the love of Jesus Christ. You need to hear that message Reflecting on the spiritual freedom of true sonship. And Paul, Paul, look at what Paul does. He breaks out on a song in verse uh, 20, uh, what is it, verse 27. He says basically this. He says, he says, rejoice, O barren one who does not bear. 
Rejoice, he's singing because love has set his feet dancing. He's, he's free to call on God, to love God. He's so filled with love, he even wants to love his neighbor. He sees that his freedom is going to, to fill the new Jerusalem with more souls than the old Jerusalem could ever capture. Well, I want to draw things to a close this morning. What's the big deal? What's the big deal? We're all legalists at heart, aren't we? Don't you love to make a list and then to scratch things off your list? Why does that make us so happy? What is, that, what is it about that that gives us a sense of accomplishment and satisfaction? Check. Check. Did that? Complete? Off the list? That gives us great joy. What are the consequences of these two women, these two sons, these two cities, these two covenants? To which one do you belong? Do you belong to the one where you'd follow the spiritual, the, 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 the legal guidelines and you go, check, check, didn't do that, good, good? Or do you belong to the free woman? who acknowledges that, no, I didn't physically commit adultery, but my heart is exceedingly wicked. And I looked on, looked on a woman with lust in my heart. Or I didn't speak the truth. Or I failed in some way to keep God's law. I broke God's commandment. I didn't love God with all my heart, with all my soul, with all my might, and all my strength. And I didn't love my neighbor as myself. Are you a son of the slave woman or a son of the free woman? If you insist on living religiously according to the flesh, remember that Abraham had a son according to the flesh, and his name was Ishmael. And Ishmael did not get the inheritance. But if by faith you hold on to what Jesus did on the cross, you can bank on two things. You can bank on the privilege of the inheritance, but you can also bank on the pain of persecution because the Judaizers are very uncomfortable with your freedom. Maybe the greatest threat to believers isn't those outside the church, but it's those inside. Those in the unbelieving church who want to live by law may be the greatest threat to those who want to live by grace. The unbelieving church wants religion and establishment. It doesn't want the gospel and ultimately doesn't really want God. That's what Paul is saying to the Galatian church. It wants to live out a theology of glory, but hates the theologians of the cross. Israel killed her prophets. Jesus' death was orchestrated by the Pharisees. The most persistent and deadly opponents of the Apostle Paul were the, the Judaizers. They did everything they could do to put Paul to a, to a stop. Luther once said, if someone does not want to endure persecution from Ishmael, let him not claim that he's a Christian. Oh, Luther understood it. 
What do you think happened to Luther after he nailed the 95 Theses on the Wittenberg door? What do you think happened after the gospel began to, to grow and blossom in all of its beauty and, and the law of the church was set aside for the gospel of the word of God? Luther endured incredible threats. We're in the month of the Reformation. October is the month we celebrate the Reformation. 500 and something years now. 502 years, I guess. Think about what the saints who have gone before have given. That we might be free in Christ. That we might live under the, under the law of grace. Paul says, cast out the slave woman and her son. For the son of the slave woman shall not inherit with the son of the free woman. In verse 30 of our text. He's not suggesting that we kick out our neighbors to the curb. That's not what he's saying here. He's saying in the attitudes in your heart, cast out that tendency that you have. Look at yourself, not at your neighbor. Get rid of that attitude that, that you, you can get right with God through scruples, through, through rules, through law-keeping. They never breed anything positive in your life. They just breed pride and self-sufficiency. Bar those things from your life. They rob you of who you really are in Jesus. The words of Jesus and Matthew, I think, apply here this morning. Jesus said this in Matthew 10. He said, if you cling to your life, you'll lose it. But if you give up your life for me, you'll find it. When you give up trying to walk your way to heaven, on the stones of motivational advice, on the stones of biblical directives and renewed resolutions, casting off hope in yourself and running to Jesus instead. It may feel like you're genuinely losing your life. You're giving up who you are and what you are, but trust what Paul says here in our text. Trust Jesus. Abandon those things that would stand in the way of legitimate sonship, of legitimate adoption, of being the daughters of the king. Trust Jesus. Love Jesus. God made the promise. He started the promise. The first, the first inkling of the promise came in Galatians, I mean in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15. You can read about it there in the garden. The promise that God made all the way back then in the opening dawn of creation is that he would save a people for himself. And that we will have an inheritance that will not pass away. That's what Jesus died for. And that's what we're going to celebrate in just a minute. Let me close this with prayer. Heavenly Father, I ask you this morning that you would take the foolishness of preaching and that you would use it for your intended, sacred, and holy purpose. That you would indeed call sinners to yourself. That you would cause us to bear the fruit of genuine repentance. For Father, one of our biggest idols in this world is to do it our way. Would you put that to death in us? May we be those who live by grace through faith in Jesus Christ alone, not in merit, not in good deeds, 
but responding to grace with love and good deeds. Oh, Lord Jesus, let your word dwell richly in us, I pray in our Savior's name. Amen.